Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Let me uh, welcome you to a day when we're going to think <clears throat> for the entire day about redemptive conversations. And our suspicion is that uh, most of you have come, maybe all of you have come, because that phrase is kind of grabbing. It's a phrase that um, I can brag about because I didn't make it up. Anthony did. And when I first heard him use that phrase, I was grabbed by it, perhaps in the same way that you were. I was talking with a couple of folks just this morning about uh, what, uh, what about that phrase has drawn them to come today. And we're standing stand right here. He and I were talking a little bit ago, and he was saying <clears throat> that the phrase redemptive conversations just makes him more aware of what he's been grappling with over the past several months, maybe a year or so, a recognition that so many of our conversations have more to do with protecting ourselves than releasing something from ourselves into another for God's purposes. And uh, he's, he's expressed, we together expressed what both of us feel very strongly and probably all of you do as well, that in engaging in conversations that mean nothing gets very boring after a while. And what does it mean to actually relate with power? What does it mean to believe that Christ is actually in us? That uh, Hebrews 10 is actually in the Bible, verse 24, where it says, think really hard about how to stir other people up. And the word for stir up is paroxysm. It's a literal word that means create an explosion in somebody else that releases the reality of Christ within them. So our topic today is that. And um, Anthony's going to be talking about that with us for the better part of the day. And I, my job for the morning is just to briefly introduce both the topic and the day, um, and more importantly, the speaker. So I'm going to take just a few minutes and do that. First, the topic, Redemptive Conversations. When I first um, heard Anthony use that phrase, and, and then as he and I were chatting about um, the desire to put on a, an entire day about Redemptive Conversations, I, I found myself having several reactions, and I imagine you've had several as well. My, my first reaction was to be drawn for reasons I've just already expressed. My second reaction was to feel very curious. What does a redemptive conversation look like? What are we talking about? And my third response was to feel intimidated. Now, I've been a psychologist for 40-some years, and I've made a money out of talking to people, but I've kind of wondered, do I know after all these years what a redemptive conversation looks like? What is it really all about? And... Um, and I think it's part of the fear that I felt, part of the sense of inadequacy that I felt when I thought about the phrase, reminded me of something that happened back in graduate school days. I want to tell you about it just for a minute. Forty-some years ago, when I was in graduate school, in a five-year doctoral program in clinical psychology, in my third year, it was the first year we were allowed to actually see people and have conversations. We never called them redemptive conversations. We called it expensive psychotherapy. Um, <laughs> But I remember the, the very first person that I ever saw under training professionally was being supervised by Dr. Arnie Miller. Now, Arnie was known as a brilliant psychologist who intimidated all the students because he required all of his students to write out a 10-page paper before every conversation that we had professionally, anticipating what we were thinking about, what we anticipated seeing in somebody else from their request for counseling, and then after having a conversation with that person, we had to write 10 more pages to our supervisor, Dr. Miller, explaining what we saw and felt and thought about. And we had to tape record all the conversations and let Arnie Miller listen to the conversations. We tape recorded them on a woolen sack, reel to reel. This is back in 1846. 
And, uh, and I, the very first person that I ever saw under kind of a professional setting in my training in my third year was a middle-aged woman who came to see me, and I was taping this, and I had written out 10 pages preparing for my very first meaningful conversation. And um, I forget what I said in that, but I tape recorded the conversation, having to give the tape to Dr. Miller to, for him to critique. And he would write 10 pages of notes on every tape that he listened to. He was very thorough, uh, irritatingly so. <laughs> and the conversation with this woman went, I thought, kind of okay, but I was nervous and scared. I was 23 years old, I think. And um, at the end of the conversation, I... And this happened exactly this way. This memory came back to me when I thought about redemptive conversations and why I get scared when I think about them. She said to me at the end of the conversation, or I said to her, well, ma'am, um, you can schedule with our secretary and, uh, for our next appointment. And her last words on the tape were, I won't be coming back. I don't think you can help me. <laughs> and I thought, um, even before the Richard Nixon thought about it, I thought about erasing that... <laughs> But I didn't, and Dr. Miller listened to the tape, and I went in for my supervisory session a couple days after the session with that woman where he had listened to the tape and done all of his notes, and I expected to have him say to me, uh, Larry, um, you might want to consider a, a different field than having conversations with people. You really aren't very good at it. But I sat down in his office, and um, Dr. Miller looked at me and said, um, you did a good job. And I, she said, She's not going to come back. I couldn't be of help to her. And he said, didn't you hear what she meant? I thought, what are you talking about? She said she didn't want to come back. And he said, well, I marked about eight places in the tape. Let me play them all for you. Where she was going in a particular direction, and then she kind of subtly shifted direction away from where she was heading originally. Didn't you notice that? Um, well, yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> And then he, he played all these spots for me on the tape recorder. And then when he finished, he said, you, you didn't hear what she meant at the end of the conversation? And I said, uh, no. Then he said, what she meant was this. How could you possibly help me? I haven't let you know what's really going on in my life yet. I'm scared to death to make known who I really am. And then he said, you need to understand, you need to learn what it means to listen, as one old psychologist put it, to listen with the third ear. And I had first heard that at that point, and I thought, that seems a little grotesque. I don't, you know, where do you find a third ear? But what occurred to me as I thought about that was um, maybe what we're about today is learning to listen not with a third ear, but with a spiritual ear. With a spiritual ear that's been opened by the Holy Spirit, and with ears that are opened by biblical categories, by Scripture, to help us know even before we talk to somebody what is most fundamentally wrong with them, because the Bible tells us that, because it's the same thing that's wrong with each of us, and understand what Christ has done in salvation that has changed something deeply internal in that person, that if we could but move into that direction and release what's alive in them because of the gospel, maybe some good things could happen. So we're here to think about listening with a spiritual third ear and having conversations that matter that don't just meaninglessly shift about the airwaves and... Um, we fundamentally get bored after a while, and then maybe there could be some really meaningful interaction in the local church of God's people. And I know some of you experience that. I experience it some, but I want to experience it more. And I'm looking forward to listening to my brother Anthony teaching us today about that. So let me introduce him, and let me tell you why I'm excited to be listening to Anthony today.
A couple things, just by way of background. Um, Anthony got his THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. And what I would say, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but what I, I know Dallas fairly well. I've been there a number of times, never took a class there, but I've been involved at Dallas some, and I have a lot of confidence in Dallas. And I believe that Anthony came out of Dallas, after talking with him a lot, with, um, with at least two strong convictions. One is the, the Bible really is true. Um, and secondly, whenever you're asking tough questions, you turn to the Bible for wisdom because there really is no other accurate source or sufficient source. So Anthony comes into the topic of having good conversations with a, a real grounding in the scriptures. And then I had the privilege of having Anthony in the program that I used to lead on biblical counseling. And he got his master's degree. And I had the privilege of being his mentor, professor to some degree, and turning into a real friendship. And then when Anthony went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary to get his Doctor of Ministry in Spiritual Formation, I was involved for just a little bit of that course and had a chance to teach Anthony again. Well, he and I have had many conversations over the years, and um, one of the reasons I respect him is because he's, he's as screwed up as I am. <laughs> I was tell that. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you have heard me say this before, but the the first book that I ever wrote was called Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling, which um, I always thought should have won an award for the dullest title in the history of Christian literature. <laughs> and when that book came out, it was my very first book, and I was all excited, and I was meeting with Zondervan, having a title committee meeting as to what title we were going to give this book. I'd finished the book, now we're looking for a title. And, um, and I suggested, I, I have an idea, to about ten people gathered on the table up at Zondervan, and I said... Uh, thinking about the book that had come out a year or two earlier um, called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Remember that book that came out by a psychiatrist some years ago? And I thought, well, maybe we could title my book I'm a Mess, You're a Mess. Seems a little, <laughs> a little more biblical to me. And their response was, you know, that's a really interesting title, but your book really isn't that interesting. Um, so we'd want to be sued for false advertising. So... And they gave it the title, Basic Principles of Biblical Counseling. But um, I really do believe that Anthony not only has a foundation in theology from Dallas Seminary and has given a whole lot of thought to what conversations look like that are guided by the Spirit and based on biblical wisdom, but he really is a man of integrity. He struggles well. Every honest person struggles, but not everybody struggles well. And I've had the privilege of interacting with Anthony a lot in a very two-way conversation, not mentor to mentee, but two brothers in Christ who are stumbling along together in the narrow road that leads to life. And I just have a ton of respect for my brother, and you're in for a good day. You're going to enjoy listening to Anthony develop some thoughts about redemptive conversations, a phrase that he uh, came up with, I think, under the guidance of the Spirit that's drawn most of you here today. It's drawn me, and I'm looking forward to it. Let me pray and ask God to bless this day, and then let me ask you to welcome Anthony. Father, uh, this is something in me feels drawn about the prospects of today. Um, I've been talking to people for a long time, Lord, and still have so much to learn. Each of us would say that, I'm sure, as we sit before you, Lord Jesus, and as we think about the way you've interacted with people, and it's just become so clear that you were there to reveal your Father, and you were there living in the power of the Spirit, and you were there as a human being, fully God and fully man, and fully committed to your Father's glory and to other people's well-being, thinking nothing of yourself but emptying yourself only for the purpose of revealing 
love to others. Teach us something about what that means today. I'll be with my, my brother and friend Anthony as your spirit indwells him and, and as he longs to release what you've taught him into each of our hearts so that we might leave here with an encouraged spirit of knowing how to relate maybe a little bit better and recognizing when we relate so poorly and being broken in your presence because of that and then realizing how forgiven we are and how empowered we are to get up again and to keep moving for your purposes in other people's lives. We commit the day to you for whatever your purposes are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please welcome Anthony Vartuli. Thank you, my friend. Well, welcome. It's, it is indeed a pleasure to have all of you here. When, we, when Larry and I actually started talking about this seminar oh, a while back, I don't even remember when it was, we were sitting down at uh, Corner Bakery and, and talking about redemptive conversations, and Larry, Larry stopped me in the middle and said, how do you see me involved in this? And I, I was quite surprised, actually, because if you know Larry at all, he, he's got a full plate. <laughs> but when we were sitting down and talking about it, he, he mentioned, how, how can I be a part of this? And um, that really blessed my soul. Um, Larry has been a dear mentor of mine, and I know, obviously, you're here because he has touched you in, in some way. And I thought about how I would introduce Larry. I could sit up here and talk about countless times we've gotten together and spoken, whether it's been on the phone, whether it's been face-to-face, um, through very difficult, dark nights that I have had, and, uh, and, and through even the ordinary times uh, where we have talked simply as brothers on the road. I remember one time when I was in Connecticut, I had just started a counseling practice, and the, and the practice was struggling. It wasn't going all that well. And we had just had our, our son, Michael, our firstborn. And I was so uh, discouraged. <laughs> and, and men, tell me if you uh, at all resonate with this thought. I thought in my heart, uh, am I ever going to be a powerful man? Is there, there going to come a day where I really speak with the, the Spirit's power? Because I don't really feel like I'm doing that right now. I remember talking to Larry on the phone and just offering up my discouragement to him. And, and interestingly, he said at that moment, I said, Larry, what, what have you held on to over the years? And he said, I've held on to the thought that even through my darkest nights, I can be a powerful man. And I just remember holding on to those words and still hold on to those words because I haven't arrived. As I was thinking about the, the whole conference this, this past week, we've had a really hard time in our church lately. And, and by the way, let me just quickly introduce some people to you. My wife, Diane. Would you just stand up for a second, Diane? My wife. My wife of 18 years and... Uh, I feel like we're just getting to know each other. <laughs> some ways are really true. In the last two years, we have partnered together in some ways that we have never done before. And uh, I feel very much a partner with Diane in the journey and also in our journey as our, uh, with our church, Trinity Church. And those from Trinity Church, will you just stand for a moment? These are all my dear friends from Trinity Church. And they've been walking with me for the past year and 
oh, nine months, we're almost two years into it, and we're a small congregation. We feel like God has really continued to keep us small for his larger purposes, where we've wanted to see more people come in some ways, and, and actually we've had some people come, but it hasn't been on our time. It's been on God's time. And, and that's been a really good thing for us as a, as a community. So we've come together, and yes, that term, redemptive conversations, actually surfaced as I have been pastoring this church for, the, for almost the last two years. And so this past week, I was thinking about how I would present this time. And uh, we have gone through some really hard things in our church lately. In fact, one of the women who could not be here today, her name is Kathy, her house was struck by lightning this past week. And half of it burned to the ground. And uh, she hasn't even been able to get into it. Some restoration people have gotten into it. And Diane has talked to her uh, a little bit here and there, but she was not able to make it today. And I, the first thought I had was redemptive conversations. Hmm. What would that mean to have a redemptive conversation with where she is right now? And actually, Larry and I were talking about this yesterday as we were sitting down just briefly together. If, for some, if, if, if we're not in some way overwhelmed by people's situations, I'm not sure we'll ever talk redemptively. We've got to be overwhelmed. And I felt very confused and still feel confused for my dear friend. Another one of the women in our church, her mother was just diagnosed with lymphoma. I was with my daughter uh, just the other day. I was thinking about getting ready for this and thinking about Kathy, thinking about the other problems we're having in our church. And my daughter wanted to talk about her birthday party. And uh, I was feeling like in my soul I had much more important things to talk about. Doesn't that sound arrogant? I found out it was. Uh, And I started to talk to her, and I I guess I came across to her in a very irritating tone. Um, Because I'm a counselor, I'm trained to see these things. As the tears rolled down her face and she ran upstairs. (laughs) I thought, hmm, maybe I didn't say something right there, God. We didn't have a redemptive conversation there. And so I sat, I sat in my office, which is in my dining room right now, and... um, was just thinking, hmm, now what do I do? Um, And I felt a little paralyzed for a while there, and thankfully, went upstairs to her room and just sat down, and I got curious, sacred curiosity. I got curious, and I I just asked her, honey, have I hurt you? (laughs) Tell me how I have. I I really want to listen. And she said, Dad, you can be so critical sometimes. And I thought, hmm, that's true. <laughs> that's really true. I can be. And then, and then tears started well up in my eyes, and I thought, what courage this little girl has just had in speaking into her dad's life. And I said, honey, just tell me. I would love to hear a little bit of what you mean. And we sat and we talked a little bit about what, what she meant. And uh, basically, it, it had to do with her birthday party and, and how 
I think in the moment, because her birthday party last year was a bit of a disappointment, I didn't want her birthday party to be a disappointment this year. So I was trying to control things, and when that happens, that's just never a good idea. Don't try to keep people from disappointment. I'm trying to learn after 20 years. And, and it was a good time. I felt like we actually talked a little bit redemptively. And I, and I spoke to the life that was in her soul. She's only 12 years old. She's got the Spirit of God living inside of her, and a big smile came across her face. And it was almost like the life just started to pour out of her a little bit. And I think in that moment, too, she said, I've got a dad who, who I can trust because he's, he's, he's willing to admit his relational failure with me. And by the way, that's the definition of brokenness, to be able to admit your relational failure. So many times when we talk about brokenness, it's about being broken over pain. And I've come to understand over a lot of years of thinking with Larry, especially as Larry's defined the word brokenness in a very different way, and also the experience of brokenness, which I think I experienced with my daughter, that brokenness has more to do with dealing with your relational failure. And as we do, as we define it in that way, the life of God can be released and we can be powerful people for God. So that's just my way of starting things off. And as I, as I thought about all of this, and, and where do I begin? Where do, we, where do we start talking about redemptive conversations? I hope you at least have in your mind, like I do, most of the time, at least in thought, is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you're thinking of the Trinity. And that's where I want to begin, with the Trinity. I'm going to read that for you if you can't read it way back there. Redemptive conversations begin with an acknowledgement that the Trinity is central to all reality and all authentic relationships. Redemptive conversations flow from, are empowered by, and are directed by the very life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have read that over and over for the last two weeks. And I hope, I hope you approach this day, by the way, by pondering, by not being so consumed with getting all the notes down, but just by pondering what the Holy Spirit might want to say to you today. Because there's only so much we can take in. And isn't it true that the Spirit of God works freely with all of us might say one thing to someone over here and another thing to someone over here. So be attentive to what the Spirit of God might want to speak to you today. But this phrase has just struck me in being a man who did come out of Dallas Seminary and grateful for that experience. Uh, when I first met Larry, was at Dallas Seminary, and he was doing a, um, a seminar on masculinity. And uh, Diane and I went. I'm not sure we were married at that point or not. We were just about to get married. 
And I thought, I'm going to go hear this guy. He's going to talk about masculinity. And I, I think part of the reason why I went was because my soul was so dry. I had all this knowledge. I'm not thankful for the knowledge. I'm thankful for the working knowledge of the Bible. But my soul was so dry, and I was longing for the, the Word of God to actually penetrate my soul. <coughs> it's one thing for us to get into the Word. It's quite another thing for the Word to get inside of us. And that's what I was longing for, for the word to get inside of me and somehow reach something inside that, that stirred. And I remember sitting there listening to Larry talk about masculinity and, and read scripture and relate the, the struggle of masculinity to scripture. And I just felt my heart stir and myself come alive. And, and at the end of the time, I... I had like 10 or 15 things to say to Larry and um, I went up there to, to say these things. I opened my mouth and nothing came out. <laughs> and uh, I, we stood there awkwardly. I don't know if you remember this. Maybe not. <laughs> it's been a few years. <laughs> but uh, we sat there awkwardly for about five seconds. It felt like an hour to me. <laughs> and then Larry said, well, it's very nice to meet you. And he called Rachel and they left. <laughs> And I thought to myself, maybe there is something paralyzing in a man's soul that gets in the way of the Holy Spirit. Because <laughs> I felt it right in that moment. And I turned to Diane and I said, I want to follow this man. I want to go where he is and sit under his teaching and, and listen to him. And it wasn't long before I met Larry that we started to talk about the Trinity. And Diane actually worked for Larry for a year. And that was actually the, the beginning of a relationship between us. And and as I heard him speak about the Trinity, it was more about relating to the Trinity than explaining the Trinity. And that actually we could somehow get into that relationship with him, with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Let me just share a couple of quotes that have meant something to me as I've thought about the Trinity and and continue to think about the Trinity in my own journey. This is from Larry, from his book, Connecting. Imagine the sheer delight of enjoying perfect relationship with two others with no fear of things turning sour, a community of three cut from the same fabric, yet unmistakably distinct. distinct. Imagine three who, without a hint of competitiveness, without a hint of competitiveness, are absolutely thrilled with the uniqueness of the other two who will stop at nothing to give each other the opportunity to display their glory. Imagine a community without even the shadow of evil with nothing but perfect goodness where every member can be fully himself without fear of promoting rivalry or releasing something bad. Now, if that's true, and there is such, such a community, then there's hope. There's hope for me and you. That as we connect to that community, we can partake in what they have. Here's another one by Daryl Johnson in his book, Experiencing the Trinity. And here is the gospel the God who 
is love draws near to me, a sinful, mere mortal, to draw me near to himself in order to draw me within the circle of the lover, beloved, and love itself. I am a co-lover with God. It is the very reason for my existence. It's a reason for your existence. And for every other person who lives or has lived on this planet, the living God as the Trinitarian God is an infinitely content God. God is not isolated. God is not needy. God is not missing anything. Yet because the love of the lover and the beloved cannot be contained, God creates us to be co-lovers with him. That is, God expands a circle to include us mere mortals within the circle of his knowing of himself. Wow. (laughs) Really amazing. I I think as a man who's... I, I came to Christ at 16... A very clear conversion at 16 years old. And um, from that moment on, I began the difficult journey, the difficult, joyful journey of becoming a Christian and being sanctified and coming to know God. And tell me if you have this struggle. I I certainly do. That uh, once you get saved, you feel like, okay, God, that was your work. Now let me take control. <laughs> let, me, let me do it now. And uh, put a religious hat on that, and it sounds spiritual. And, and I think I, I fell for that for a lot of years, and really no fault to, to anyone outside except my own, really. My own heart being zealous to somehow take control of the sanctification process, which... As a man who's now 48, I'm learning a little more rest, that it's not up to me, that, that somehow God is working in a way that I cannot control, which feels terrifying in one sense, but in another sense, uh, it offers me and it offers you an invitation to rest, rest in a God who is moving. The first four words in the Bible are very hopeful. In the beginning, God. And that means God was there before you and I were. And it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see a picture of of all of them there. Uh, We see it in Genesis as the Spirit hovers and the Father's there. We hear about it later in Colossians that Jesus was there creating. So the picture of the Trinity is right there at the beginning, offering us an invitation into what they have and offering us an invitation to say, uh, we're the ones who get the, the conversation started. And I was thinking about, first of all, before I do that, what, what stirs in your heart? What, what are you thinking about as I'm talking? Let me hear from a, a couple of you. What goes on in your mind as you hear me speaking or something stirring inside you? doesn't necessarily have to be something stirring. What goes on in your hearts? How I can incarnate Christ with people that God puts in my hmm. How you can actually live out God's life, incarnate Christ in your relationships. Wonderful. The description 
of the Trinity being a beautiful picture of marriage? Hmm. Yeah. How the Trinity speaks to the marriage relationship. Certainly anyone who's married here will hopefully struggle through the implications of what it means to be husband and wife. Cut from the same cloth, yet uniquely different. Cut from the same cloth, yet uniquely different. And brought together somehow gives a picture of the Trinity. Uh, I think that's wonderful. That's amazing. How, if I can uh, experience in that same quote the spirit of no competition and that encounter with love, mm -hmm. that I can co-labor and co-love with God to create that here. Oh. How she can co-labor and co-love with God to create the same thing that the Trinity has. That's just amazing. Yeah. Can everyone hear him, by the way? One of the things that we struggle with is can we experience the Holy Spirit the way the first century Christians did in the first century? Mm -hmm. Because we feel, I personally feel, we limit him. And, you know, there wasn't any denominations during the first century, it was just the church. Mm -hmm. And so now we have denominational lines, how we accept the Holy Spirit and not accept him. And that's a struggle that we've been really struggling yeah, and how, how it's not just about denominations, that the Spirit of God freely moves in all of his churches. Boy, wouldn't it be something if we could have visions for, for churches other than ours, that they could actually experience the same thing that we're being invited into? That's a wonderful way of thinking about church today. A couple more. One here and maybe one on this side. 49 years ago, discovered that the Lord is going to, through His Spirit, connect with your life. No matter what path you're on, you know, things went wrong in my life, brought me to my knees. And then mm -hmm. the Lord said, are you ready to listen now? Mm -hmm. And He touched my life, and for the last six years, it's just been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Well, the Lord brings us to, a, to our knees to reveal who He is. Move us in a different direction, perhaps, and that's why you're here today, perhaps. Great. Is there one on this side? Uh, yes, the Mike. That, that the Trinity invites us to participate yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah. Forever, the, for now or forever. The Trinity invites us to participate in what they have. And think about the quote by, by Johnson that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't lacking anything. And, and, and the life of God pours out. Take that image. The life of God always pours out. And because they had something so wonderful, they wanted us to be part of it. And Larry used these words yesterday as we were talking. I love these words. I hadn't heard them put together. But he said, you know, when we get into redemptive conversations, it's really holy fun. <laughs> now, I'm not sure we should always define our conversations as fun uh, because they can be hard. We can have hard conversations. Uh, there was once when I was going through the darkest Time, one of the darkest times in my life, when in the middle of our marriage, bottom came out of my, my life, and I struggled with a depression that I just I didn't think I was going to come out of. And um, it was really, really difficult for several months. And, uh, and Larry and I, during that time, had many conversations <laughs> about 
what it means to think about the deeper battle in the heart, as, as you heard Larry speak this morning, that there's some battle going on inside of me. It would have been so easy just to think about getting over the depression and, and trying to get on with my life and, and just get, get over the darkness, as opposed to thinking that somehow the darkness is some kind of unwelcomed opportunity for the Spirit to work. And I just so appreciated his movement with me in that direction because that feels more redemptive. If he had just talked about my depression, I think something inside my heart, the deeper part of my heart, would have been missed because I really want to be a powerful man, a man who, who speaks redemptively. Yeah, in the back. I've been clinically depressed most of my life. Yeah? Mm. But this phrase, in the beginning, God, it seems yeah. to me that even in my darkest hour, he was there. Yeah. And I, that's a revelation. Yeah, it is. It really is. I, I honestly didn't think it was. Okay. And there's a shift right there where, yeah, it's not just about my depression. It's about how God is moving with me in that, that he really wants to reveal to us. The words from Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that you're really familiar with. Turn there for a second. Let's just look at those verses. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You know the verses well. After God had created all of the physical world and said, it is good, it is good, it is good, he says in, in verse 26, then God said, let us, it's the first time we hear that us there, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then this verse, it's interesting, and I really like this in the NIV. If you have an NIV, you might, you might actually see this, but you won't be able to see it, obviously, here. But the, the words are actually in a different form. They don't actually follow the, the typical paragraphs. And it, I got curious about why that was there. And actually, that's verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the first instance of poetry we have in the Bible. Don't you think that's interesting? That that would be the first instance of poetry in the Bible? Something beautiful is happening here. That's what it says to me. Something beautiful, something mysterious is going on here. Something amazing God is creating man in his own image. And this is where my mind went as I thought about those words, let us create man in our image. Where do you suppose they were looking when they said that? This might, be, might not connect with you. I just thought I'd share it. Where do you think they were looking? My sense is that they were looking at each other. Let us create man in our image. Looking at each other, talking with each other, about this mysterious creation that they're just about to, about to make. 
And I imagine in that moment they're looking very tenderly and lovingly at each other, delightfully at each other, because now they're going to create a community of people who could participate in what they have, which is their delight to do. And I also imagine them looking knowingly at each other. Uh, I would assume in that moment, if not before, it's hard to think about how God thinks, <laughs> since God is all-knowing, so I'm not sure it happened precisely in this moment. But I, I, I would presume they, were, they would look very knowingly at, at each other because they knew it would require the cross. That it wasn't going to be, hey, we're just going to invite these people in and they're just going to be fine. And No, that they were going to give us free will and that we were going to rebel and, and live for ourselves and not even give one thought to what it means to be in relationship with God. And that would require the cross of Christ to redeem us, redemptive conversations to redeem that which is lost, right? To literally change our hearts so we would know him. And that would require the cross. And I think they also looked at each other very hopefully, so tenderly, delightfully, knowingly, and hopefully that there would be people and here you are. You're his people. And he delights in that. And I'm his. And he sees my struggle and, and is with me in my struggle and somehow uses my overwhelming struggle uh, to bring me into more of who he is. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's something else I want you to ponder just about the Trinity because it feels so important as we think about redemptive conversations. Um, I want you to notice how God chose to relate. I'm sorry, how he chose to create. How did God choose to create? It's easy to miss because it, we've read it so many times. But he used words. He spoke. Don't you find that intriguing that he spoke? They use words to create the world, to create us. This actually comes out of my, my youngest daughter's children's Bible. I think it speaks right to what, what's happening in Genesis. The Bible is God's story, and it begins with these big words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know how God created everything? Simply by speaking words. Imagine making the world with words. Strong words. Powerful words. Words with words God created everything. He made the stars, the sun, and the moon. He made the animals, the fish, the trees, and the flowers too. Everything. And then after all these things, God created people. And he did so by using words. One of my friends, and I know some of you know him because he's He's been part of SSD. He's a dear friend of Larry's for many years. Kent Denlinger actually got me thinking about this. I was at a pastor's conference at his church, which is a, just a wonderful church in Warsaw, Indiana, that I feel like our, our little small community of Trinity is, is really beginning to learn from. They've been together for 25 years. We've been together for two years. 
And his church actually gives me hope that there are communities that could really flesh out some of the things that Larry has been saying for years. Larry's voice has been for the church. That's how I've always experienced his voice. And, and to see it flushed out in, in Kent's community has really brought me hope that it can really happen. And I'm sure there's hopeful signs in your own communities. But I, uh, Kent got me thinking about this. Could God have chosen a different way to create if he wanted to? Yeah, he could have. He didn't have to use words. He could have waved his hand. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have thought a thought. But he used words to create. Words are basic to our existence. And I believe they are basic and rudimentary to God's creative work and his breathing life into the world and into us. He really delights in using words. It is good, he says several times. It is good. He stands back like an artist. It is good. And then when he creates people, it's very good. And there's something else speaking those words that bring forth life. So redemptive conversations, speaking words. Think of the words redemptive conversations. What do you think of words that draw forth life? Words that can reach deep inside and draw forth life. Make me the man that I was created to be, or at least move me in that direction. Make you into the woman that God has created you to be by using words. Think about this, that even in our silence, we communicate something, don't we? Even when we don't speak words, we're communicating something. Think about Adam. When Adam didn't speak, certainly communicating something. I remember when my son was born. Um, it was a really tough delivery. <laughs> More so for my wife than me, <laughs> I would think. Wouldn't you agree, honey? Okay. He was born like four or five in the morning. I remember holding him in my arms, just kind of terrified. He was looking up at me. His eyes were wide open. And um, we brought him to an incubator because he needed some, some oxygen. But then I remember when he cried, he just cried out. Wah! You know, just cried out. And, and I thought, that means something. <laughs> He's actually communicating to me. He's actually communicating something. And that means bring me to my mother. So <laughs> promptly brought him to my mother. <laughs> From the moment you were born, the moment I was born, we were meant to communicate something. That's part of our design. And our words communicate. And we look at James 3 a lot, don't we? And typically the way I've been taught James 3 is that there's, you know, there's a very bad energy in us and it could really be damaging, so watch out. And I think that's half true. Because there is a, a very damaging energy in us that could really damage. But think of the opposite. There's also a good energy in us. A powerful energy that God has, has put inside of our hearts that could really breathe life or draw forth life from somebody else. And we should think about that at least as much as the damaging, if not more so. That there's this life inside of our 
our hearts that is just waiting to be released. I think sometimes I'm, I can be more terrified of that than I, than I can of the bad stuff inside me, you know? If that makes any sense to you, that sometimes I, I, get, I get fearful about speaking because I, I might actually be powerful. And then what? <laughs> then where do I go? Um, I've had to repent of that, actually, really. Um, and, and to really believe that I've got something to say. And, you know, as Larry was even speaking up here, Larry's been such a, such a presence in my life. Um, and I think I can... He, he even actually said this to me yesterday. He said, I can falsely believe that, you know, that, that he, he, he is the one who's bringing the power. Well, actually, it's the Holy Spirit inside me that he has sought to release inside me. And so it's, if, if Larry were uh, to, to go apostate, would I still follow the Lord? And would there still be life in me? Yes. I don't assume that he will because <laughs> he's a man who's, who's really walking with God and, and I watched that. But would I follow? Yeah, I think I would because the Spirit lives inside of me. So it's not, it's not just Larry, but it's the Spirit inside my soul. And it's the same for you, that it's the Spirit inside you. And, and will you and I learn to seize the opportunities to speak redemptively? Will we really believe that there's something powerful inside of us when someone some situation comes along will we speak when we feel prompted to speak this just happened two weeks ago I was we were with Diane's uh, relatives and there was a certain guy that I was with and and I felt prompted to speak I I didn't know him very well he uh, actually Diane's brother Um, yeah John and just haven't gotten to know John very well. And, and uh, we were there f- uh, at his house in Washington, actually West Virginia. They were taking us around Washington, D.C. And it's just a wonderful time to, to get to know John a little bit, uh, her older brother, many years. So Diane really even didn't grow up with him. So we were just, uh, in some ways, getting to know each other and having a good time together. But I just felt at some point, I, I just wanted to get curious about his life. And, and immediately I felt a struggle. Am I going to say something or am I not? Am I going to hold back or am I going to move forward in the, what feels uncertain? Redemptive conversations can feel so uncertain and feel the, almost the terror and excitement together rise inside you. And uh, at one point we, we started to talk and, and uh, I said something to him like, so tell me about your story. <laughs> tell me about who you are. I, I, I just don't feel like I know you very well. And I, I'd really like to know you a little bit better. Um, you know a little bit about me and Diane. Um, and he started to talk and talk about his, his own struggle and, and journey with God. Uh, it didn't go very far, but it was enough for me to think, huh, that could open a door further on for us or maybe him. And it wasn't even so much about the results as it was more about me taking the opportunity, seizing the opportunity. There's just joy in doing that, whether I see any results or not. And I think, I think John and I had some meaningful moments together as we, as we talked about God and life and um, 
And I think, I think you can have those same conversations. I remember a conversation I had with my sister, Anne. It was right before my father died, right after my father died, my older sister. And uh, my dad died three years ago tomorrow, actually. And right after he died, we all gathered in Connecticut where we had grown up. And, and Anne and I, my sister and I, were walking back from the beach and... Uh, there again, it was a moment of, hmm, am I going to speak to her? Do I want to say something to her? And I really did. And so I asked her how she was doing. And, you know, sacred curiosity. Sacred curiosity. Just ask a question. And I did, and, and we began to talk, and I just found out how much she missed my dad, and she talked about different stories about how he had really spoken into her life and I had a very opposite experience with my dad very deep struggle with my dad um, up, up until the end we had a few good conversations near the end of his life which I'm deeply grateful for but most of the time it was a deep struggle and for her it seemed to be the opposite he, he somehow touched her and I just got curious about that didn't say very much by the end of the time we had just gotten back to the house. She turned around, and she looked at me. And my, my sister's a very, very intelligent woman. She's a very smart businesswoman. She just you know, comes across very competent. She turned around. She said, thanks for tolerating me. And she kissed me on the cheek. Just like that story that Larry shared at the beginning, it's like, wow, do we really know what's going on in people's hearts? Because here's my sister who looks so competent. And yet, inside her heart, she feels like she's tolerated. Redemptive conversations can actually move into a person's heart, into the depths where they really struggle and where the life of God can be released and if the life is not there, then the potential is there, isn't it? That, that God-shaped space that's there in the heart. I wonder if we start to look at people that way, what difference it would make. Kind of got off the trinity a little bit. But the power of words. I think underneath everything that, that Larry has said to me over the years... whether he's said these words specifically to me or not. Sometimes he has. I've heard the words, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe something bigger for you. And never as an expert, but as a, as a, as a friend, as a mentor, really, as a, as a godly man walking ahead of me and saying, to me, come follow me as I follow God. Don't follow me, but come follow me as I follow God. And learn what that means for your own journey. So in one sense, I don't know, would you agree with this, Larry? In one sense, it feels like one ongoing redemptive conversation <laughs> between you and I. Yeah. That it never really ends. And I was... I was talking to Mike here at the beginning. 
and um, Mike's in a church and and uh, seems like a good church, a good place, about 100 people in his church. Is that right? Something like that. And uh, ours is consider- considerably smaller than that. And we're learning that small is good. Small is really good. I mean, obviously God does things in large settings, but small, small actually brings forth opportunities to have redemptive conversations in an unhurried fashion. And they have to be unhurried. There has to be a a way of discerning the movement of the Holy Spirit, which is unhurried. Uh, And I've, I've jumped ahead of him so much. And so I hope that Part of what you take away from here, I'll I'll leave it up to the Spirit, of course, ultimately, as to what you take away. But I hope part of what you take away is that there's no shortcuts here. There's no shortcuts to having redemptive conversations. It takes time. It takes sticking in there with a few people over long periods of time. And uh, hopefully, hopefully you're in situations that that allow for that. This is one of the passages that we've hung on to. It's actually from the message. Is that the narrow road passage? But listen to it out of the message. Matthew seven thirteen fourteen. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do, The way to life to God is vigorous and requires total attention. And that's um, and that speaks to the pace at which conversations go. God's just not in a hurry with us. Um, You know, that's why I feel like I can have that conversation with my daughter and almost feel, in one sense, have I moved at all in the last twenty years? Have I really changed much? Well, I guess God will have the ultimate say in, in what's changed and what's not. But I think what, what changed, if anything, from that conversation is my willingness to go up to her. Not that I fail her less. Because I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think we're going to fail people less. That's not the definition of sanctification. <laughs> I think sanctification has much more to do with when you fail people, when you begin to acknowledge your failure, when you become more broken and realize what gets in the way of the Spirit, then the Spirit can be released. So I don't think I'm going to fail less. I fail. If anything, I fail more or I'm aware of my failures. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah. I'm more aware of what I'm, when I'm failing. And, and that speaks to maturity, I think, hopefully. Larry. Yeah. Yes, he was. Tyler. Yeah.
I could be real someplace. But he went on to say, not that we're simply going to be a bunch of failures the rest of our lives, but we're going to regard failure as our opportunity to grow. Yes. And uh, I was very struck by I read that this just yesterday. I think I think you're right. Yeah. And therefore, I feel comfortable to deal with what's going on in me about wanting that so badly. Yeah. And I yeah. Think that just results in when we get together, not all the time, we're not together that much, but yeah. we get together, feel like the conversation simply continues because we're on a path and we know it's going failure, but always has the opportunity for redemption. I really like that. Yeah. And that, that speaks to the fact that somehow you're not going to be in a hurry with me because you know God's in an ongoing process with me. And see if you would agree with this, but the, the fact that we continue to fail is really hopeful in one sense. If we, if we don't fail, if we don't continue to fail, shoot, my, my small little congregation here can tell you of times I failed. I've already failed them. And the failure has been opportunity, just what you just said, opportunity to, for all of us, to really think about, huh, what is maturity really about? Is it, is it about us not disappointing each other? No. It's about us acknowledging the failure and learning to celebrate forgiveness together. And I will tell you, in the last year and nine months with these people that I've journeyed with, I don't think we're anything special. I mean, we're, we're, just, we're just people walking and we're, we're people that, that fail a lot together. And, you know, that's, just, that's nothing special. <laughs> but we have, one thing that I have felt is a deeper desire to celebrate forgiveness. And I, and I believe that has been birthed from a willingness to look at how much we fail each other. Would you agree, David? David's one of the elders in our church, leaders, founder from the beginning. Dave and I have had wonderful conversations. and um, You know, that, that phrase that, that Larry used, looking bad in the presence of love, how we long for that, how I long for that, and how you long for that, that we could actually reveal not only our pain, and that's a good thing to reveal our pain, but to reveal our failure with each other. As James says, confess your sins with, to one another that that would not just be some outward kind of command, but that actually would speak to a desire inside of us to, to confess our sins to one another. And through that, some kind of supernatural movement takes place. That's what's available to us. And, and I, think, I think the Trinity had that in mind from the beginning. They, they knew that we were going to fail and... Um, through our continued failures, they would invite us into their redemptive conversations. They're the one that started the whole redemptive conversation. In some ways, we, we're meant to somehow follow that current, move into that. What, what is the Father, Son, and Spirit saying to you and me? What is he saying about my friend or my sister or my brother-in-law? Am I going to 
seek to listen to what they're saying first and then have that prompt me to move? Or am I going to be reactionary and try to fix or help and all the things that get in the way of the Holy Spirit? Here is this, this, this is really interesting from um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his book Life Together. You guys ever read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together? At one level, it's really hard to understand. <laughs> He's very deep writer and um, it's hard to understand so but this phrase struck me as I was reading it this week in life together this is what he says he says perhaps perhaps the contrast between spiritual and human reality he would define human reality as the natural sense no awareness of God just me and you and no God perhaps the contrast between spiritual and human reality can be made most clear in the following observation. And this is what he says. Within the spiritual community, there is never, nor in any way, any immediate relationship of one to another. And I, it's, it's kind of confusing if you just hear it and don't hear the context of it. He goes on to elaborate on the context of that. And what he means is that if I come to you and you share a problem with me or share a burden with me and I think nothing of the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, then I will react to your need and out of my own natural desires. And if I don't move through Christ, as he puts it, constantly moving through Christ to see you and to see who you are, then I will most, most likely miss what God is doing in your heart. Does that make sense? There's no immediate relationship. That's what he means by that. And Daryl Johnson said something very similar. He said, and this is in experiencing the Trinity, I am to love you by joining the Trinity loving you. You are to love me by joining the Trinity loving me. I am to love you not as much as he loves, but with him as he loves. That can take the pressure off <laughs> a little bit, can't it? We can't, we can't love the way the Father loves. He loves perfectly but can we join him in his loving? Yeah, we can. That's the hope, that we can join him in his loving. Got the time here. Where does it all begin? It begins with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They got it all started. They sustain it. They sustain our conversations. And we seek to join in what they're doing. And so this phrase follows. It is because of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection that we now have the life of God 
living inside us. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in our hearts. There is life in the deepest core of everyone who knows Christ. And redemptive conversations serve to release this life, which is already in our hearts. Think about if we really believe that for one another. We really believe that there was life inside the very core of you and the very core of me. Where if you sat with me for a while and you got to know me, most certainly if you sat with me for a week or two, maybe an hour or two, you would begin to discern what gets in the way of the Holy Spirit and you could feel some real disappointment in your relationship with me. I wouldn't doubt that you would. Are you going to believe something deeper for me? And will I do the same for you? As I'm in relationship with you, am I going to believe that there's something inside of you that is really worth fighting for? That yes, there is a sin battle, And yes, there is a place to discern that and engage it. But for what purpose? There always has to be a larger purpose, and the larger purpose is to release the life. It's a very hopeful reason. And that's why we can begin to discern those things with each other. And I think I've I've had to learn over the years to to wait a little bit longer when I'm having conversations with people and to, and to really think about the life inside my friends who I journey with and not be in such a hurry, but to believe that God is somehow working to release it. And I don't, I don't have to help people necessarily in solving their problems because problems are so good in one sense, in in releasing that life inside of us. So I think I've come to be a little more rested pastor and rested person for this very reason, because I I believe God's working. And uh, I'm not always like that, but more so. Yeah, question. Yeah, the question being that can you say that about an unbeliever as well to release the life inside of them since they don't know Christ? Not quite like this, I don't think. But you could say that there's the potential of life there. And, and, and can we look at those who don't know Christ with, with those set of eyes that there's actually the potential of that that space inside of them being filled with the life of God and that they're created just as much as we are in the image of God. And as Lewis says, uh, no one has ever experienced or been around a mere mortal. The idea that we all bear the image of God and that there's the potential of life there. So that's, that's a, a different way we can look at it. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. And so I think we can...
Let's look at a couple of passages that, that feel important as we think about the life of God. Think about the life of God inside your, your soul. Okay? Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. How is the temperature in here, by the way? Are you guys hot? A little hot? Fine? Probably shouldn't ask that question. <laughs> now I feel all nervous. <laughs> Who do I please? <laughs> I'm feeling a little warm, so maybe we could tweak it a little bit. I don't know who's got in charge of that. Make it a little cooler in here, perhaps. <laughs> or leave it. <laughs> I'll let someone else decide. Isn't that masculinity? You do it, Kevin. <laughs> I know. Just leave it. Just leave it. Colossians 1. Let me get there. Colossians. That's in the New Testament, correct? <laughs> Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Everyone there? Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to, to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That's us. That's Paul laboring for us. I have become its servant by commission, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. And here it is. To them that God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. And those two words that go together, struggling and powerful, I think those words go together. It's not that we necessarily feel powerful. <laughs> That's not what makes us powerful when we feel powerful. In a lot of ways, we need to be overwhelmed. And if we're feeling overwhelmed, then perhaps we'll actually depend on the Holy Spirit instead of something that we're going to say. And I think that's what Paul's getting to there. I don't necessarily think he feels powerful. In fact, in 1 Corinthians or 2nd, he says, I came to you in weakness, struggling. So what? The power of God could be displayed. So I think that's what he means when he says that. But look at what he's laboring for, Christ in you and Christ in me. I want you to believe that for me. 
So when I sit down and you say, how's it going? And I start to share a struggle that you'll believe, even if it's a, you know, a serious struggle and failure, that you will believe that there's something beneath that. And if you do, if you believe for me that, that deep in the core of me, Christ dwells and is just waiting to be more released, then I'll feel more safe with you. And that's what creates safe community, to really believe the life is there. And no matter what we see in each other that's bad, there's something good underneath the bad. And to use Lewis's words there, everything incorruptible reflects something, sorry, the other way around, everything corruptible reflects something incorruptible. Another way of saying that is behind every bad passion, there's a good passion. Behind everything that's distorted in you and me, there's something good. If we know Christ, the life of God, that's there. And I think this passage really, really speaks to it. Let's look at one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16. Actually, let's start with verse 10, uh, the second part of 10. It says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the, the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit. Do you sense the mystery of this? Expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the, the, the part that really struck me was the, the first part, that the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I think the way the message puts it, if you have a message translation, it says the Spirit's not content to flit around on the surface, but wants to dive into the depths of God. That's what it says. Wants to dive into the depths of God. So here's what's astounding about it. That Spirit lives in you and me. So... We really can't say that we're superficial people. We could use that excuse, of course. But we're not superficial deep in our hearts. 
There might be things that are getting in the way that keep us from moving down to the depths of God. But in reality, you can join the Spirit in searching out the depths of God. Doesn't that, does that astound you to some degree? Hopefully humble us a little bit because how does that happen? How does that take place? That's huge. And that's given to everyday believers. That's why when we thought up, up the... Uh, the subtitle of this, Redemptive Conversations, Releasing the Power of Everyday Believers. That's, that's the power that's inside of you and it's inside of me. It's not, it's not due to my training. I, I thank God for my training and, and training is good to, at one level, but it, the Spirit lives in every believer. And so therefore, you can move with Him into the depths of God, releasing the power of the Spirit inside yeah questions yes. can you expand on me a little bit about release this life because it sounds like we have the life within us but we imprison it or we let it get crusted over so it needs to be released it's not something that comes naturally and that the redemptive conversations then are aimed at breaking through that crust or breaking through those prison bars to release this life how does that life get released yeah we're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but I can let's speak to it here. How does the life get released? How does how does that? What would you say? I'd be curious as to as to what some of you would say. How does how does the life begin to get released from inside of us? How how would you put it into words? Just simply questions. Simply questions. Okay. So sacred curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Asking a question that's actually genuine can get us on that road. That's part of the answer, I think. Yeah, in the back. I read that he said our burden was supposed to be light. Uh-huh. And, and it wasn't. And so I started asking him, how, how is it going to be light? Okay. Okay. Happens gradually. Um, so... Some of the work that I do in the world, I see a lot of people suffering mm-hmm. and not knowing their identity. Okay. And so I think, as you said, entering into the Trinity to ask God you know, to show us who that person is and then speaking that, yeah. calling that out, yeah. reminding them. I see people come to life out of that place. So we talk about, so you were talking a little bit about this sort of badness we see or this misbehavior or the sin or you know I'm not calling it all the same thing I'm just yeah. you know defining some of the words people use around that that I see a lot of people actually dwelling on that as their identity and being as in their a, deepest identity as their perhaps. deepest identity yeah. and then really being in such a a place to not even see who they really are okay. yeah. and then having the kind of redemptive conversation to ask those questions and to point out even what the Father shows us to speak into that person's life brings life and brings a different kind of conversation. Okay. Yeah, that... And if I could just add to that, that you're saying that there's the deepest identity is the life of God. There's certainly a struggle to face. And I think that's what you're asking. Is there a battle to face? Is that correct? Well, it's more, it seems like if we have this great life inside of us, why aren't we just... Why do we need redemptive conversations? What's the status of that life inside of us that needs to be released? 
Why is it just overflowing? Why does it just come out? Right. What's getting in the way? Yeah, th that's a very important question. Yeah, over here. So relationship is 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 the deepest ontology that that we need relationship. There's really no way to deal with what is hindering the spirit without a relationship. I mean, we can try to think through it in our heads, but that's not going to release it. The only way it's going to be released is in relationship as as you or I begin to talk about more than our pain, certainly our pain, I would say our relational failure. What does that look like inside of you? How do you fail relationally as a man? How do I fail? I, I gave you an example how I failed my daughter. And if you and I were in Tell me your name, by the way. Bill. Bill, thank you. Um, if you and I were in conversation, Bill, and, and I sat with you and you started to, to share some kind of relational burden on your heart, I would immediately want to be thinking about, okay, well, the life of God is inside of him, but what's getting in the way? What, what's, what's hindering that release? I want to think about where you fail relationally and where I fail relationally. And I would want to come, I would want to come with the mood of, I'm a, I'm a sojourner with you because I fail too. So that feels very important to me as I hear your question that we need to define what gets in the way as, as relational failure. Why am I critical about my daughter? You know, is it just because of the pain of my past? I think the pain has helped shape, shape that for, for sure. Um, but I also think there's, there's, there's a fist in my heart that gets in the way. The flesh warring against the spirit, the spirit warring against the flesh. The way I've heard that, maybe I've heard it from Larry, is there is a fist in all of our hearts that that gets in the way of the Holy Spirit. So what does that fist look like inside of you? What does it look like inside of me? And can we talk about it as brothers, not as expert, non-expert? Because that, that's not the way it's talked about even in Scripture. It's, it's brother to brother, sojourner to sojourner. With Larry, Larry never felt like an expert to me. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people would put him in that category. But that's never what drew me to Larry. What drew me to Larry was that he, was, he had the courage to admit his relational failure with the greater hope of seeing the Spirit released. That's what drew me to Larry. 
And that's why I've, I've listened to him. Not, I mean, he's got incredible insights, and all those things are important. But what draws me most is that his willingness to be an authentic man who, who can admit when someone comes up to him and says, you know, I want to talk to you about just something that I see. And his willingness to enter into that with people and not brush it aside as though it weren't important. And I, that's how I've felt the power release inside of me as, as people have sat with me and, and, um, and been willing to explore that relational failure inside of me. Does that get to your question? Does that, what is that, does that stir anything inside you or how does that, uh, how, how do you, what do you do with that inside yourself, Bill? I guess what I see are kind of two, I don't know if they're stages, but one is sometimes there might be an initial breakthrough that needs to occur just to, as the beginning or as a part of the redemptive conversation. Then you move to the stage that you and Larry have where it's not going where that initial release, so to speak, of that life is just ongoing now. But there okay. needs to be kind of that initial breakthrough in a community where there can be open communication, vulnerability, and acceptance in spite of failure. But once that's achieved, it then seems like it's easier to some degree for that to continue. Yeah, it might be. I, I think there's, you know, there's a place to talk about what does it mean to develop safety first? where people can actually come and, and be, a, be a mess and, and feel like it's okay. I, I love the words of one of our, our elders. We went on an elder retreat, a leadership retreat. And, um, and where's Mike? Mike Karstens. Mike is in the back. He's one of our leaders. And um, they were just, fa- you and Lisa were just facing something um, that, was, that was tough going on. Just, you know, their marriage at... And they had come up later to the leadership retreat. And, and uh, you know, we, we had some kind of agenda, but we, we stopped. And we entered into their lives. As Mike has entered into my life, I'm deeply grateful for, for Mike and, and David, how they've entered into my own failure. And so we just, we just talked about their lives. And I remember, at least at the end, we, we talked probably for about an hour, I would say. Would you say it was about an hour or so? Mike? Yeah. And I remember Lisa coming up to me afterwards, after we had talked, and people just being sacredly curious. She came up to me and she just said, thank you so much for just letting us be a mess. And I think that's what you're talking about. Develop that kind of safety over time. That can, that can really help us in terms of facing what is wrong inside of us and not and believing that there's something deeper. So. Something that's helped me, um, I just led a group of women um, in the pop-up prayer. Yeah. And I've read the pop-up prayer twice before, but by leading this group um, and actually literally going through and telling them how I presented myself to God and how I attended to God and how I purged, mm. you know, to God. And I think that that released something within that group too to be able to say oh my goodness our leader is a mess and she Hmm. struggles with bitterness or whatever and I mean that's the way to be a powerful leader my own journey with the papa prayer and really just being relentlessly real with God Hmm. I think is a a big step in 
you know, sacred conversations with one another too, because yeah. you just realize that we are all a mess and that God's forgiveness mm. and grace is so amazing. And yeah. so that particular book. Yeah, and there's something to, to talk about that, yeah, it is. In relation to this. Yeah, praying relationally, which is what the book is about. What does it mean to relate to, to God instead of simply just ask him for things, which is what we typically do? What does it mean to actually relate to him and bring him our honest self? That's huge. That's big, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's always about um, burdens and problems. I think everyone has in their hearts a desire to be known. And by someone, um, you know, knowing, wanting to know you, I mean, sharing the deepest joys in your life, mm -hmm. that can also be really redemptive because you can have things inside that someone else can bring out by just wanting to know you that you didn't know were in there that's really joyful. Yeah, I think that's, and, and that's the important, we're going to talk about the church later, and I, I think that's important to, to think about as we, Think about the ongoingness of, of all of this. That that uh, shoot, Larry and I have gone to ball games and hung out and not talked deeply. And there is a place for that with, within all of this. I just don't think it happens quickly. And uh, I think my temptation years ago was to think I, I could do this in a couple of sessions. <laughs> and uh, God has had to humble me over the years and. Teach me, no, this is going to take some time. And, and really, you know, am I willing to look at myself more than I'm willing to look at somebody else's stuff first? It's going to change the tone as to, as to how I speak to people. We're almost ready for a break here. I just want to make sure I've gotten through at least two pages of my 50-page notes here. <laughs> Um, I actually love these words from um, Peter Kraft. I, I listened to this CD, actually. I, I think I sent this to you at one point. It's called The Shocking Beauty of Jesus Christ. Remember that one? Yeah. The Shocking Beauty of Jesus Christ by Peter Kraft. You can actually probably still get it if it's a CD that was put out by Gordon Conwell while I was there doing my doctorate. He was doing a lecture there, and he's written the book up by it, but I like the CD a whole lot better. Uh, and you could probably still buy it, buy it there at Gordon Conwell, The Shocking Beauty of Jesus Christ. But this one phrase struck me. He says, It is the splendor of truth that attracts us to truth. It is the beauty of holiness that attracts us to holiness. In one sense, it's kind of out there. and like, what does that really mean? I, I'm not sure, but this is what I came away. It is the splendor of truth that attracts us to truth. It is the beauty of holiness that attracts us to holiness. And my mind just immediately goes to Jesus and how he was with people. Obviously, there was nothing to... Uh, work on in, in terms of Jesus' life. I mean, he was perfect. He was sinless. And yet, 
he was accessible. And he was the splendor of truth. If you think of the, the story in John chapter 4, where he comes to the woman at the well. I love that story because there he is opening himself up to a person that is pushed out to the periphery and people typically ignore. And he brings himself to her and in that ordinary conversation of, give me a drink of water, I'd love to get a drink. And what are you asking me for a drink of water? I'm just this woman from Samaria. You're not even supposed to be talking to me. And, and Jesus says, well, if you, if you had asked, I would give you the, the water that springs from eternal life. And um, here's what amazes me about that story. As he later goes on, and he remember the part where he says to her, um, well, bring your husband out here and, you know, I'll get you the water. And she, she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've been, you know, you've had all these relationships. They haven't worked. And he speaks that, that truth to her. But I think what am, most likely amazed her more was not so much that he knew that about her, but that he knew that about her and he was willing to remain with her the splendor of truth and the beauty of holiness. That's kind of, and, and can that be released inside of you and me? Can the splendor of truth, can the actual living truth be released and the, and the beauty of God's holiness be released out of you and me the same way that it was re- released out of Jesus? I think it could. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.